Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Lou. Hello. Hello, divers. Welcome to episode 43 of Diving In. A funny thing happened this time with our theme. We kind of didn't have one. <laughs> and uh, we just sort of read what we wanted because I think we were so used to the last two episodes just reading whichever of the new releases took our fancy mm. that we just read what we wanted. But even though we had no theme, it has emerged that we have a very strong yeah, theme. Yeah, very strong theme. I mean, I look, I have to admit to being super disorganised for this episode. I literally a couple of weeks ago grabbed a few books and one that I'd wanted to be sitting on my TBR for ages and a couple of others, and I cannot believe I know. how strong that I've called it connective tissue is between them. Yeah, it's a, it is amazing. Mm. I also had started a few different books and I've abandoned a couple because mm. one of them I'm going to try again with. And so I had a few on the go before I settled on the ones I'm going to talk about today and there would have been no commonality at all <laughs> if I'd stuck with any of those. Uh, today we also have a bookish item and uh, some other non-bookish things that we've been diving into and a reminder about our book club book, but we'll come back to that a bit later. And Lou, you had some feedback you were going yes, to I did. read it. Uh, there's a bookshop, Iconoclast Books, which is in Idaho, I believe, and I think they might be moving premises because they have commented on the Jonathan Franzen Crossroads book, and she says, I loved it. It's going on my staff pick shelf as soon as I can open my new store in our new locale. Oh, how So lovely. that's Iconoclast Books in Idaho. Gorgeous. And we had a little note from Tabby Pavlitsky. Um, she has been listening to the Anita Hill podcast. Oh. Uh, she's listening to the first episode and she said, thanks for the recommendation. She's such a hero. So that's good. Oh, to, so I love it too when we yeah. hear that people have been listening to our recommendations. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, you also had a book that you have just finished that you're going to talk about today. Yes. The one I've just finished is dubbed as a psychological thriller. It's called Tangerine by Christine Mangan. Uh, it's not a recent release. release. It was a gift from a friend and it's been sitting on my to read pile for quite some time and then after we did the episode on books in translation uh, and I was delving in a little bit more into the French occupied territories oh, yes. I remembered this book so look at the heart of this book are two women and their relationship and it's an acquaintance and then a friendship that starts when they become room roommates at Bennington College in the 1950s in Vermont and one of them, Ginny, is an Alice. Oh, of course she is. <laughs> Alice Shipley is what would be described in this era as well-heeled. Um, her mother is British and her father is American. And they both perished when Alice was a teenager and she's been raised by her wealthy aunt. She's very beautiful, she's delicate and she's a bit naive. The other young woman is Lucy, who is very intense and direct. 
She's at Bennington College on a scholarship and very little is known about her past save that, like Alice, she is also an orphan uh, and that sort of creates an initial connection between the two girls who are sharing a room. And then the book opens a few years later. It's 1956. Alice is now living in Tangier, Morocco, with her relatively new husband, John. She isn't especially happy in her marriage and she isn't really coping very well with expat life. She's sort of fearful of going out despite John's best efforts. She's sort of been warned to keep away from the locals, which the expats refer to with appalling casual uh-huh. racism as mosquitoes because they're always hovering around. Uh-huh. And in turn, the locals refer to expats who immerse themselves in Tangier as tangerines, hence the name uh-huh. of the book. And unlike Alice, John fully embraces life in Tangier and you get a sense of the sort of very atmospheric heat and a lively community, it's colourful and there's sort of a, an edgy nightlife. I think there's a little bit of a missed opportunity with the character of John. He wasn't, for me, a super strong character. He's supposed to be doing some work, sort of unspecified work, right. for the British government in Morocco. But I, I think a little bit more could have been made of that sort of shadowiness of him and others like him, particularly given that this was a period of sort of a bit of instability and there was this sort of push for independence. There's a bit of a Graham Greene, John le Carre oh, okay. feel about the book. But it wasn't developed hugely because really the focus is is the relationship between these two women. Right. Uh, And apparently from the 1920s, Tangier was a place where a lot of European and American spies and diplomats hung hung out. So now Lucy has turned up in Morocco on Alice and John's doorstep, completely unannounced. She's left a job as as a publisher's assistant in New York. Alice has never spoken to John of her earlier friendship with Lucy. Oh. And it seems that Lucy and Alice have not been in touch for a very long time. And Alice doesn't really know why Lucy's come to Morocco. Lucy, on the other hand, seems fairly attached to Alice and she appears to know exactly why she's there. And so from that point on, the novel alternates between the two narrators, Alice and Lucy, sort of chapter side by side. And there's this sort of creeping unease uh, and there's a some weight hanging on each of their internal dialogues and perspectives because they're at odds with each other. And as a reader, you're not sure which one of them to believe. She's been very sort of clever, I think, in the way she's created these two narrators because they're not necessarily contemplating the same memories consecutively. Okay. So she shares the different versions of events at different times and so it sort of builds and it, and it builds layers of sort of paranoia, and danger, and just when you think, I think I'm on Team Alice, right? The sand shifts slightly. Oh, okay. Um, and their past recollections mingle with their current intentions, and so the tension builds. Right. Uh, and and it's clever because it propels the story forward. I was at times a little bit irritated by Alice. She's young and she's a bit fragile, and and I found sometimes her inertia a little bit. Maybe hard to believe, but just a little bit irritating at times. The book is extremely filmic, um, uh-huh. if that's even an ad- adverb. Yeah, no, I'm it, is sure it is. It is a book. Well, I use it all the time, so <laughs> <Okay>. therefore it is. <laughs> therefore it is. Virginia has spoken. Yeah. 
Um, you imagine sort of a very glamorous kind of set, a mm. very colourful city. Like Casablanca yeah, or something. absolutely. <laughs> you know, that it, it, they're on the cusp of freedom and there's a little bit of racial tension and politics and, and this sort of very intense relationship between these two young women. So not surprisingly, George Clooney and Scarlett Johansson have bought the rights to the book for a movie. How so fantastic. There you go. So that's Tangerine. Oh, I'd like to read that Christine now. So Langen. I've read it before the, the movie comes, movie out. comes out. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, that's published by Abacus. What about you? Uh, so, apropos our theme, which everyone will be aware of because they're listening to the episode, which will have the title. <laughs> um, this is The Mad Woman's Ball by Victoria Muss uh, and translated by Frank Wynne. It's really beautiful. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful cover. book. It's not, not very big. One of the things that I am very interested in is the practice in the past, or maybe a little bit now as well, of locking women up when they had any mm. sort of issue or any sort of mental health problem or were inconvenient in, in any way. And there's lots of great books that cover that theme. Mm. I mean, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox yes, absolutely. by Maggie O'Farrell is one. And they, they threatened to lock up Ruth in Bass Rock. Bass Rock. The Secret Scripture is a great one. Mm. It's one of my favourite ones. Um, Jane Eyre is another one. Mm. The Yellow Wallpaper is another one. And the new Sebastian Folks yes. one, Snow Country, is set in an asylum in Austria. It happened everywhere and it's just a fascinating thing to look back on and to watch how things have unfolded since then. When women became inconvenient to yeah. society, basically. Yeah. And the best way to solve the problem was yeah. just to yeah. lock them up and keep the key. So this novel is set in the famous Paris asylum, the Salpetriere, in 1885. The Salpetriere was originally a gunpowder factory, uh, saltpeter being a constituent of gunpowder, but in the 17th century it became a hospice for the poor women of Paris. And in the 19th century, when this book is set, uh, there was a Dr Jean-Martin Chacot. Very good. <laughs> and he was a leading neuropsychiatrist, I suppose. He sort of developed it into the leading neuropsychiatric hospital. And he made it into a, a substantial teaching hospital and he was particularly interested in hysteria. Mm. And he used to hold sessions where medical students and people could come in and watch him hypnotise women. and But even that gets my hackles up, the uh, use uh, of the uh, word hysteria. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and the terrible reality of all of this is that women with a vast range of issues were locked up here in the Salpetriere. There were women with depression and anxiety. There were women with epilepsy. There were stroke victims. There were people with conditions like bipolar disorder mm or women who'd been traumatised by assault, serious assaults, and they were just all locked up. Oh. And the treatment really, I don't know. Depressing. <laughs> That's another whole story about what happened to them while they were in there. And some of the women were just outcasts from their families, so their families put them away. Some were homeless women, some who had been prostitutes, and some who had experienced a traumatic event or just an inconvenience to everyone. So that was the solution. And if this interests you, it's mm. it's really worth Googling the whole thing but and Googling the hospital because it's a massive, very old building right in the centre of Paris. And 
the whole thing is just fascinating to me. It's now a big teaching hospital as part of the Sorbonne, and it's France's largest hospital now. Wow. And it's one of the largest hospitals in Europe. Um, and this is the hospital that the late Princess Diana was taken to yeah. when she uh, had the car accident that claimed mm. her life. So that might be why the hospital sounds familiar. So in this novel, Victoria Mass has created a story about a handful of different women. There's Genevieve, who is a nurse in the asylum, and then there are a couple of patients in the asylum, and there is a woman who is not in the asylum, who's from a middle-class family, who later comes to have a connection with the asylum. And these stories all circle around and move forward and each of these characters sort of come to be connected in the lead-up to the annual Lenten Ball, which was this huge masked ball uh, where the creme de la creme of Parisian society were invited <laughs> to attend and you did not turn down an invitation if you mm. were lucky enough to receive one. And it was held in the asylum and the women were invited sort of as entertainment. Oh, God, it's making my stomach turn. Um, oh. I don't even know who thought this was a good idea, but probably Monsieur Chacot and his colleagues. Oh, dear, dear. So the women were given a small allowance and they started making their costumes weeks ahead of the ball. Oh. And they were pretty much from what I can tell, part of the entertainment in that I think the rich of Paris wanted to come in and, and see these women because, of course, because they were locked away, I think there was a mythology yes. about them and there's always been that issue about women and witches and hysteria and and when things are kept hidden and locked away, yes, they assume... <laughs> Yeah. a greater sort of interest in our minds perhaps than they do nowadays. But it's still a spectacle. It is a spectacle. Yeah. It is a spectacle. So this event happened every year. I think it was phased out in the 20th century. <laughs> <laughs> so this book sits squarely in the period mm. when, when this ball took place. I can't give away an awful lot about this story because it's very suspenseful. It has this escalation of events surrounding these women who appear to have nothing in common with one another but who come to have a really fascinating connection. There's this excellent depiction of various other women who are in the hospital mm. or in the asylum and they range from this one lady who they decide she's well enough to leave and they just mm. basically, there's, of course, no plan for how to reintegrate her into the community like we have now. They just basically say, you're ready to go home. And she does not want to go home because she doesn't have a home and she's never really lived anywhere else. So that presents another whole set of problems for Very her. Very Esme Lennox. Yeah. So you really do get an, a, a great idea of what life was like for all these women and the wide variety of issues that this sort of thing uh, created. It's really suspenseful. It's a real page turner. The women characters are really well drawn and I just had to keep reading it to, mm. to find out. And all circle circles towards the ball and then there's a, a major event at the time of the ball. So it's also been made into a movie. Oh. It's soon to be released on Amazon Prime in French. I didn't know that when I read it. I actually just saw that in a comment when I was looking at it on social media. 
So then I clicked away and I found it and I've watched the trailer mm. and it looks fabulous. Mm. It's exactly how I pictured mm. everything with the, the outfits of the day and carriages and the middle-class woman and the nurse. It's, it looks mm. fantastic. So I really would recommend this one. It's called The Mad Woman's Ball by Victoria Mass. Oh, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, really, really good. What was your next one, Lou? Uh, well, this is a new release. This is Mrs. March by Virginia Fato, uh, and it's her debut, and it's published by Fourth Estate, which I think is a HarperCollins imprint. Uh, Mrs. March is a very socially conscious, mannerly lady living well on the Upper East Side of New York in an apartment with her celebrated husband. He's an author, George. Is it modern times? Or? Well, that's interesting oh, okay. because... It's actually quite hard to place. Oh. There are televisions and there are telephones, right. but there's no mobile okay. or computers. So, and I, think, I don't know if it's deliberate. Okay. But she's, you know, she's always wears stockings and I think it might be the 1970s. Okay. Maybe 70s, maybe a little bit later. Right. Or a little bit earlier. I think any time between the 60s and 80s, I think this book could be. Okay. It's, but it's hard to mm. pinpoint it. Fato sort of has very early on sort of establishes, I guess, a portrait of Mrs March as a fairly insecure woman, obsessed with appearances, living a fairly sort of prescriptive existence. She, you know, she visits the same patisserie every day. She gives instructions to her housekeeper, Martha, and she arranges parties, basically. And she's referred to as Mrs March throughout the book. Mm -hmm defined only by her status as a wife, of course. Her name is not revealed until the very last line of the book, oh. and it's rather delicious the way that's done. So the insecurity she feels, sort of her lack of confidence about her appearance, what she wears, and the judgments that she's secretly making about other women in their social circle, they descend very quickly in the book, sort of from insecurity and petty jealousy to something a little bit more unstable. Ooh. I'm not going to give a, a great deal away about this book because, you know, it really would be very easy to descend into spoilers. But the trigger in the first chapter of the book is a visit one morning to her favourite patisserie. She is served by Patricia, the manager, who rather enthusiastically tells Mrs Marsh that she has been reading George Marsh's latest book. And George Marsh is Mrs Marsh's husband and he is a celebrated author. I'm just going to read a passage from the book because I always think that the author does a much better job. So, Patricia, I've been reading your husband's book, said Patricia, temporarily out of sight as she crouched behind the counter. I bought it two days ago and I'm almost finished. Can't put it down. It's great, truly great. Mrs Marsh moved closer, pressing against the glass case of assorted muffins and cheesecakes in an effort to hear over the din. Oh, she said, I'm prepared for this exchange. Well, that's nice to know. I'm sure George will think it's nice to know. I was just saying to my sister last night, I know the writer's wife and she must be so proud. Oh, well, yes, although he's written many books before. But isn't this the first time he's based a character on you? Oh. <laughs> um, and she doesn't know. Uh, no, she doesn't know. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so it's quite extraordinary. And I'm going to keep reading a little bit here, so it's rather <laughs> lovely. What do you mean? I mean the main character, Patricia smiled. Mrs March blinked, her mouth agape, unable to answer, her thoughts sticking to her skull, despite her pulling at them, as if they were trapped in tar. Patricia frowned at the silence. 
I could be wrong, of course, but you're both so alike. I just thought, well, <laughs> I picture you when I read it. I, I don't know. But the main character, isn't she? Mrs. March leaned in and in an almost whisper, she said, a whore? <sighs> so this discovery by Mrs. Marsh that the main character in her husband's book, Joanna, a book she hasn't read, has you know, to people what who are... What a It's fantastic. It's fantastic. So, yeah, as I said, she hasn't read the book. She'd skimmed a draft a year earlier. And in her words, her understanding was <laughs> that Joanna was a fat, pathetic prostitute. And she'd been so repulsed by the story that she, you know, found graphic and distasteful that she'd... she'd shown no more interest. Shown no more interest. <laughs> so the fact that she might have become her husband's muse completely horrifies her. So she returns to their apartment and she goes to her husband's study and takes a copy of the book and is frantically, you know, seeing who's it's dedicated to. And, and she comes to the acknowledgement section and she reads a thank you to his wife as a source of constant inspiration. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> She also discovers a newspaper clipping on, in a notebook on her husband's desk, which I'm not going to reveal the contents of that at all, but that coupled with the fact that her husband may have based the character on herself, a character that she it just feels is so vile, so vile, <laughs> this sort of sends her off on this sort of path of discovery. Right. So this is really a portrait of Mrs March's psyche. You know, everything she sees, everything she hears from that moment on, this is sort of literally the first chapter of the book, is through the lens of the perception that she's been betrayed. Right. And she's completely consumed and trapped by that possibility. So you're in Mrs March's head and obviously her interactions are coloured by her state of mind. So it's fascinating because at times you really don't know are things a figment of her imagination or, or, or not. I know that's a pretty short review, but there's not a lot I can say without spoiling the plot. It's very darkly funny in parts and it's very well written. She builds a fantastic sense of sort of panic and obsession. It's quite Hitchcock-like in places. Yes. You'll love, Virginia, that Mrs March has a book on her bedside table that she's currently reading and it is, of course, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. Oh, it's just that extra yes. little touch. yes. And a woman who's got issues with her husband. Absolutely, yeah. There's just lots of little little signals throughout the book like that. It's Love really, that. really well done. She's sort of very deliberately constructed a very narrow sort of slice of Upper East New York society. So you really feel how small and confined her life is. So that sort of adds to the trapped kind of feeling uh. as well. So it, although I think it is possibly set in the 1970s, it is a story that would adapt itself to quite a few eras because it's really all about being in the head. Yeah, a universal theme. Absolutely. Really, and the actress Elizabeth Moss is apparently incredibly desperate to play Mrs March, so she has acquired the rights to the book. Oh, how fascinating. Mm. And I can see her absolutely in this role. Wow, that sounds Again, so a very filmic yeah. book and I guess... A psychological thriller. Wow, that sounds great, Lou. So that's Mrs. March by Virginia Fato, Fourth Estate. What about you? What's your next book? My next one is a Niall Williams book. Ah. Uh, and I have talked about him before mm. because he wrote 
This Is Happiness, which is, I think, one of my favourite books. And you reviewed that in our Irish episode. Yes. And this is History of the Rain, which he wrote earlier. This was long listed for the Man Booker in 2014. And I think I actually adore this even more okay. than I love This Is Happiness, which is really saying something. Mm. This is about a young girl named Ruthie. Ruthie is a 19-year-old Irish girl who is lying in an attic reading the 3,900-odd books that had belonged to her father. Ruthie lives on a small farm in a village in Ireland named Farha, which is the same village, fictional village, that he used for This Is Happiness. And I think it's uh, modelled on the village that Niall Williams and his wife now mm. live in, or it's in that, in that general region, from what I can gather. And apparently it just rains all the time <laughs> in this village, That's as you can imagine. Yeah. And Ruthie is a very bright young woman. She's been reading all of the 19th century novels and she has a vast understanding of all of the classics and all of the characters and she especially loves Charles Dickens' books and she's read all of his novels. She's been away at university at Trinity College in Dublin, but she's had to come back home after collapsing at university. And she's been having lots of tests and she's been in and out of hospital. And when the book starts, we don't know what's wrong with her. We don't find out until much farther along in the story. And Ruth tells the reader that she is searching for her father and that's why she's reading all of his books. And she traces back through the family history. So there's a little bit about her grandparents, then her parents, and then her own life with her twin brother. And she's sort of, at this point, living her life vicariously, really, through all of the books that belonged to her father. It's a slow burn. It's very rambly, but it's rambly in that delightful Irish way. Mm -hmm where if you can make the time for it, you should just sink in and mm. just enjoy the rambliness and the Irish lilt and all the little side anecdotes about all the different villages because it takes a while to get to the story. Mm. You can imagine he, she goes off on little side tangents about this one and that one in the most delightful way and it does make you slow down and just go with the flow. I felt as though I was in very good hands and that Niall would reveal all in due course, and I was right. And I knew that because I knew what a great job he'd done with This Is Happiness. It's, it's just so beautifully crafted, and they're, they're both beautifully crafted. He's just a master at the pacing and the little bits of clues, the little Easter eggs he leaves you that keep you turning the pages and wanting to know what's happened and why is she in this attic room and... And there's some references to people who don't seem to be still here and you don't know whether they're still around and if they're not, why not and what happened to them. And you are very invested because there's so much heart in his stories. This one is filled with literary references. So for any bookish person, this is just gorgeous because she constantly references the books that she's been reading that belong to her dad and she even will, in brackets, put Chateau and Windus, okay. second edition, yeah. 1925 or whatever. So you, you just get that lovely bookish sense throughout the whole thing. There are the most wonderful villagers who are such kind, good people. 
you just love all of the villagers there hearts are in the right place. There's a Mrs Quinty who used to be a teacher who comes to visit Ruthie sort of as a tutor. Uh, she comes once or twice a week and comes up into her attic room mm. where she's sort of bedridden and she's helping her write the book that we're reading, mm. really. And apparently Mrs Quinty, uh, her husband's left her. <laughs> she, no one says anything about it. And apparently Mrs Quinty is such a good soul she's going straight to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's this beautiful depiction of, this is just an indication of the kindness of the people mm-hmm. in the village. I'll just read this a little bit. It says, the, the parish could be odd like that. Mary Hegarty pushed a pram through the village for nine years after her son Shawnee had died as a baby oh. and not one person ever said, Mary, your pram is empty. They just let it be and she went on wheeling her grief through the village and out the back roads by the river where all grief flows. Oh, he writes so beautifully, doesn't he? Isn't that that's something, isn't it? Oh. I cannot tell you how much there is like that. It oh. is so beautiful. There's a reference to a, a relative who was a pole vaulter and she, sorry, he describes him as a like a knight charging with a lance and it just sort of merges the two. It's so beautiful. His writing is just astonishingly good. Mm. I just absolutely As love it. As many Irish writers oh. and you just, you know, that maybe the, you know, history of storytelling yep. and the culturally they just write so well. So beautiful. Yeah. There's a delightful old grandmother in this who lives in the house and she can't come up the stairs to the mm. attic room that Ruthie's in. So they just call down to each other in this lovely way. And the grandmother will call up and say, oh, it's a rainy day today. <laughs> That's my <laughs> Irish accent. That's all right. <laughs> uh, there's a very steady mother who has been through more than one woman should ever have to bear. Mm. And Ruthie also has a, a divine suitor, a young Vincent, Vincent Cunningham, and he is the most devoted boy and he has been in love with Ruthie since they were children and he is steadfast and true. Mm. <laughs> he is just the most beautiful character. It sounds like a big book. There is a lot in it. There's a lot of sort of preliminary stuff about the ancestors, but I really would, if I'm recommending you read this, if this sounds like something that might interest Mm. you, it's really worth sticking with it because it just gets better and better and better. Mm. It's a slow burn. Yeah. A lot of things have happened to Ruthie's family. I'm not going to go into any of them, but it's told with such warmth and such love that it's completely wonderful. Um, It did result in two big fat tears rolling down my cheeks at one point. There's Mm. a, a sad a very sad spot and I did have to sort of just shut the book and just sort of take in what I was reading but it's just done in the most beautiful heartwarming way and it has a great ending a really good ending and I love love loved it I just absolutely loved it so I'm going to read more books by him I'm going to go and order Mm. some he's just fantastic so that was History of the Rain by Niall Williams oh that's a great review Ginny yeah I'm going to read that that was lovely What was your next book, Lou? Okay, so the final book I want to talk about today is The Night Village by Zoe DeLille, published by Fremantle Press, and it's a relatively new release. This is a very modern story that so many new mothers of babies will relate to. It's been described in sort of dispatches as a thriller by some. And look, there is 
a good deal of sort of psychological torment, I suppose, and, and some intrigue. But I don't know that I'd call it a thriller as such. Not in the traditional sense, anyway. Maybe it's a domestic thriller. Okay. The book is narrated by Simone, and we first meet her in a postnatal ward in a London hospital waiting to give birth. Paul, who we assume is her partner, is with her, and they have a baby boy, Thomas, and they soon take him home. And home for them is a flat in the Barbican, a very nice flat in the Barbican in the heart of the City of London, not especially a residential area. But Simone is an Australian from Perth and, like so many Aussies, she's moved to London and she's working in publishing. She's met Paul a year ago and she's ended up moving in with him despite probably thinking in her heart it's just not something that either of them are taking particularly seriously. It's sort of just a domestic arrangement that kind of suits them. But when she becomes pregnant, she's quite surprised by how positive he is and he tells her that he will look after them both. And when they take the baby home, uh, the author Zoe DeLille does a really fantastic job of capturing sort of that experience of being a new mother at home with a baby for the first time. She really gets it. She creates this just such a familiar feeling of the of the lows of I don't know what I'm doing followed by the, oh, I think I've got this, I think I can manage this. So it's just a fabulous capturing of that feeling. Wow. It's very familiar. Yeah. After three weeks, Paul is due to return to work and he announces that his cousin Rachel is coming to London to look for work and a place to live and she would like to stay with them. Oh, with a brand new baby. Yes, with a brand new baby, Virginia. You got it. Um, Now, Paul thinks it's a good idea because Rachel has offered to help with the baby and despite some misgivings, Simone is kind of persuaded by that and she's, of course, persuaded by it because... She thinks, I might have some help. And Paul says, well, Rachel might cook for you and look after you. But the misgivings only grow when Rachel arrives and the book starts to sort of take a bit of a dark turn. Oh, Paul is at work all day, so Simone and Rachel are together uh, in the flat with the baby. Paul is something of a blurred character. I think it's deliberately so. He's a bit detached at times emotionally and has these sort of moments of oddness. But he's sort of got a job which requires him to work long hours, and that adds to sort of the sense of his absence. Right. Simone is this sort of perfectly normal new mother. She's deeply protective of her child. You know, she's trying to listen to her instincts, but she's not eating well, and she's becoming increasingly sleep-deprived. With all that that brings, obviously her senses are simultaneously deprived but also on high alert. Oh, And there's something about Rachel that really bothers her. Oh, no. And so, you know, every new parent would relate to the sensation of feeling that you're losing your mind with a newborn. Oh. So is she imagining things? Or is this part of being a new mum and... Being a bit sleep-deprived. Being sleep-deprived. Or is there something really going on? Right. I don't want to say any more about the book because it no. really would okay. give it away. Yeah. It's the oh, shortest review so on record. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. You know, it was very accessible to read. I, of course, was one of those Australians who spent years in London in my 20s and Simone escapes from the flat with Thomas in the pram, walking around Shoreditch and Liverpool Street Station, dodging office workers on and off buses, and then she finds refuge 
often in a museum. So I loved that very familiar portrait of London in the book and really recommend it. It's a really good book. It's not a hard read at all. Zoe DeLille, The Night Village by Fremantle Press. Sounds excellent, Lou. I love the sound of that. Do you have a bookish item? I do. I just thought I'd flag because I found it fascinating that the US Justice Department has commenced proceedings to block the acquisition by Penguin Random House of its rival Simon and Schuster for 2.18 billion US dollars. Oh, that's incredible. Which is a staggering amount of money. This takeover was announced about a year ago, I think, and it's only now that the Biden administration has launched these proceedings, mm. which I don't quite understand that timing, but I'm going to sort of be following this a bit more. Mm. Penguin Random House is the largest US publisher and apparently they have 300 different imprints, things like Knopf and Riverhead. Yes, yes, sometimes you're surprised surprised that they are actually... So many different imprints. Uh, And it releases about 15,000 new releases every year, which is a lot of books Mm. out into the world. But the Biden administration does have this policy of increasing competition. And uh, I suppose the timing of this just worked out in terms of the new administration coming to power, because as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) I wish they would focus more on the Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. Issue. Absolutely. (laughs) Ownership. Mm. And I think they are looking at that as Mm. well. But they're obviously going to target any really Mm. big the hair moths uh, who are looking to do And isn't the issue about the imprints that when they apply for prizes or they apply, there's a rule about imprints of the same house are allowed to apply but only if there are other publishing houses. So that makes it quite tricky if you own all the imprints. Well, some publishing houses do allow that, competing Mm. bidding with their own imprints. Yes. And some don't. I'm not sure which one Penguin House which camp they sit in. But, yes, it's they've obviously got very strict rules. And, I mean, obviously you don't want your two entities competing against each other because you're just going to increase the price. Yes, well, that's and, – and apparently – and I read a, a small amount of the New York Times article about this, so I don't know much about it at all. But I understand that, that normally in antitrust cases they're worried about the price and that seems to be mm. the driving issue. But in this case you've got another – group of stakeholders and that's the writers and royalties yeah so that capturing yeah you know no flexibility over royalties is also a huge yeah. issue yeah it is so yes we don't want to be paying more for our books but there's a whole heap of other people involved here the actual that's right people in the industry as well apparently one of the things that they're concerned about is that there will just be less books yeah okay uh, so that the fifteen thousand that penguin random house published might continue but Let's just say Simon and Schuster also do 15,000. Mm. Maybe they will cut those. Now, I think spokespeople from Penguin Random House are saying that's not our plan. Yeah. We're best. just wanting to cut costs at the back end. Yeah. And economies are centralizing about, you can, certain you can see services. That, and that things. could cut costs. Yeah. And printing costs and all sorts of things. But standardising what people, what authors will receive and, you know, standardising contracts and things like that. I don't know. I, it's yeah, it's I just think it's an worrying. awful lot of control about it's very what worrying. books are being yes, put out into it the is. It is a control. It's absolutely about world control. And what, we, what we'll all be reading. Mm. And So, yeah, I think it's going to be a fascinating case to watch. I'm going to be following it quite closely. Mm. And what else have you been diving into recently, Virginia? I've just been watching... 
two little shows which I thought I would mention because we're just loving them. My husband and I have been watching them. The first one is just the latest season of Grant Chester, which is, you know, it's fairly sort of standard Grant Chester stuff. You know, it's light and fluffy Mm. and entertaining. But what it is doing for me is it's reminding me very much of the book that I reviewed, uh, My Policeman. Mm. It's a really great commentary on what it was like to live in the 1950s if you were gay. There's a storyline there that's flowing through which concerns a gay curate Mm. and um, he is prosecuted and it's fascinating to, to watch. And just to be reminded, this is you know, really quite recent past. Yeah, absolutely. And to see how things have changed, I mean, it's also very encouraging. Mm. So I've been really enjoying it from that perspective. And the other little show that we've been watching, a little series, is Annika, which stars Nicola Walker, who I really love. And she plays a character who's been made the new head of the Marine Homicide Unit, Mm. and they cover all the waterways of Scotland so it's fascinating from that point of view because the scenery is just gorgeous and the opening credits have water all bubbling mm. across the camera lens and there are, you know, bodies and things underneath the water. It's it's really well done. And she's sort of grappling with a, a young teenage daughter. She's a single mother. The thing I'm really loving about it is that it has, every episode has literary themes. So the first episode it was all about Moby Dick The second one was all about the Nordic sagas. The third one was all about Ibsen, Ibsen's plays. The fourth one was all, it wasn't so much literary, it was all about bridges and what bridges do and do they keep people in or do they keep people out. And It was was very sort of, I suppose, literary in a sense. But the person who had died was an author. And are they based on books or? I'm not sure, actually. I absolutely love Nicola Walker. Mm. I think she's close to one of my favourite actresses. She's so good. And she really looks the part in this. She's not overly glamorous. She does break the fourth wall in this, which I think where she talks to the screen and that isn't something that everybody loves. It's fine for me. Some people say, oh, that takes you out of the story when she turns mm. and talks she to the camera. She does that in River as well, which is another detective series she's in. She okay. talks to the camera in that as well. But there's a reason why she does it in that one. Yeah, this one is just, I think it's just a means by which you get to see what's inside mm. her head. But uh, And I'm not sure that you need it because I think mm. we can see pretty clearly from everything else what's inside her head. But it doesn't bother me at all. But I'm, we're really enjoying that. So oh, I'm going to definitely going to binge on that one. Yeah. And then I just wanted to remind everyone that we have got a book club book coming up. We're going to be discussing The Lincoln Highway by Amor Towles in our next episode. That's going to go to air in early, very early December. Uh, so we, ha- we had a giveaway um, and three Instagram followers won a copy of the Amor Tales books and um, I've sent those all off. Two have gone off to America and I think one went to Canada. So hopefully the winners will get those very soon. And, uh, well, hopefully they will have them by the time this mm. today's episode goes to air. So... Uh, we're going to be discussing that in our next episode and that will be a lot of fun. I'm yeah, really can't looking wait forward for that. to that. And also we might have had some photographs taken by we might, Louise. We might. <laughs> we have hidden behind our microphones for quite some time with good reason. Uh, and, yeah, we might actually be having a little photo shoot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
yes, all good fun. So that's all we have today on women that have been locked up either in prisons or in prisons of their mind or in their imagination. Do let us know if you've read any of these books, the ones we've talked about today, and whether you enjoyed them and what you thought of them. If you've enjoyed our conversation today, we would love you to leave us a review and also to tell a friend about our podcast so that more book lovers and podcast lovers can find us. And we'll see you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Uh, now, do you want to ask me about if I've got a bookish item? <laughs> I've got my other book. Done. What are we like today? Honestly. Sorry, Andy. I'm sitting here thinking of all the things I should have said about Mrs. March. That I and I'm say. moving on. I'm I've a- got a whole page I didn't talk about. That's how disorganised I am today. My notes, I've actually gone from page three of my notes to page six of my notes. <laughs> Anyway, and we're receiving phone calls during the episode. It's an absolute <laughs> show today. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Okay, I'll, I'll start again. That's all right. I'm going to start the whole thing again. Yeah, and I'm going to try not to. I won't look at you. Okay, I'll... okay. The US Justice Department has commenced proceedings to... <laughs> <laughs> what did I do? Oh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Do you want to go out of the room while I do this? I'll just do it on my own. <laughs>